Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today you're listening to the first episode of Season 3 of the show. That's right, people, we made it. Uh, I'm still ticking, we're still ticking here. Very excited to tick off Season 3 of High Tea Obsessed, which is going to be a bit of a departure from the previous two seasons, which they didn't really have a set focus. It was all about getting better at podcasting, talking about the things that I was into. And, you know, I even got lucky enough to interview people that I like, people that I, people that have inspired me as a podcaster and made some nice new podcasting friends along the way. But season three, it's going to have one set focus, and that focus is all about heists. So we're talking con men, we're talking deceptions, we're talking heist movies, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a set season. So what I'm thinking is, 20 episodes, 10 dedicated to some of my favorite heist movies, and 9 dedicated to real-life heists, or at least heist-adjacent topics, all culminating in the ultimate movie heist crew draft. So, myself and three friends, we're gonna tee this up, we're gonna be, each choose something that we want to steal, like maybe it's a bank robbery, maybe it's a museum heist, something like that, then we're gonna each draft head to head to head to head a team we're gonna have like a wheelman a leader top chasing them all the parts of a heist crew you have to have them and you know more details will come on that but that's the finale of this whole shebang very excited to get there very excited for you guys to hear what we have in store and to kick this season off very excited because what we're doing is one episode every day this week for you guys and that's just so you can get the temperature of the season, see like kind of the flavors that we're dealing with. And so the first episode you're listening to today, and we're going to have four more. And then after that, we're going to be back on the regular Tuesday release schedule, one episode every Tuesday, and that will take us until about February 8th. And then after that, probably take a short break to figure out what's going on. I do have some ideas for the next two seasons so i think i'm gonna do some random episodes again in the middle between the big focus seasons again and obviously depending on how i feel after doing 20 episodes on one topic and also after reviewing like how the views do our listens do i might completely scrap this plan but anyway that's all you got to know about what's going on this season for now there's going to be more updates in the rest of the episodes this week and then obviously more to come but today i'm talking about the theft of the mona lisa as you no doubt know from the title of this episode so on the other side of the break i'm going to be getting into that On August 21st, 1911, Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, the piece of art behind so many conspiracies, investigations, memes, the Mona Lisa itself, was stolen by an Italian handyman. So before the theft, the Mona Lisa was not close to having the reputation that it has today. It wasn't even like 
even a speck as famous as it is now. And it was largely unknown to those outside of the art world. It was first painted by da Vinci in 1507, and it was hailed as a masterpiece of Renaissance artwork by a number of critics as early as the 1860s. But that was pretty much it, you know, the art people were into it, high society, that type of thing, but the average person wouldn't know what the Mona Lisa was if you asked about it. In fact, the fact that the painting was missing wasn't even noticed until over a day later. And at the time, the Mona Lisa wasn't even the most famous piece of art in its own exhibit, let alone the most famous piece of art in the Louvre or the world. So it's sort of like the famous cliche, or it reminds me of this anyway, that an artist's work only becomes valuable after they've died. Only in this case, it was the publicity surrounding the theft and all that stuff that made the Mona Lisa's fame skyrocket, because it is considered to be, you know, the most famous painting of all time now, and probably the most viewed piece of digital imagery, or of imagery in the world, and it's priceless, so, you know, not bad, not a bad gig. Anyway, so I think for this episode to work out best, at least how I have it in my mind, what I'm going to do here is give you guys the details of the theft, a little bit of background on the thief who pulled off this heist, that sort of thing, get into how this saga concluded, the aftermath, all that good stuff, and then get into some of the motives behind the theft and some of the conspiracies surrounding it, all that good cheese. So I don't know if it'll work out, and feel free to let me know if I should have done it differently after, but I think it's going to be juicier. It feels juicier to me anyway. I think it's going to work out if we do it this way. So I already told you that the theft occurred on August 21st, 1911. And so there is a little bit of controversy over who carried out the heist. There, Some say there were three thieves, and it was Vincenzo and Michelle Lancelotti, who pretty much leave the narrative after this, and they denied being involved. And the one person we can verify of being involved, Vincenzo Perugia, they all deny that the two brothers were involved. So I just wanted to bring that up, that they might have been involved as accomplices, but they're not coming back into the story. So our guy Vincenzo Perugia, which I listened to several podcasts, that's how a couple of them pronounced it. So I'm going to go with that. There were other pronunciations, but Perugia is the easiest for me to say. And if it's incorrect, I apologize. Other people did it as well. So it's not just me, but that's what I'm going with. So, Vincenzo Perugia was born in Dimenza, Italy in 1881, which means he was about 30 when he committed the crime. Standing at only 5 foot 3 inches tall, he can charitably be described as having been rather pugnacious throughout his life. His own brother would call him a madman, and Perugia would have fallings out, falling, fallings out, falling outs? Fallings out sense, right? Perugia would have fallings out with many, including one of his alleged accomplices for a time prior to the crime, over the low, low cost of one franc. It also seems like his co-workers didn't like him, as he said during his trial that they'd often steal from him, put salt in his wine, and called him macaroni eater, like so like a slur, of course. And this sort of anti-Italian sentiment from his co-workers is important to keep in mind for later on in the story. Perugia would also spend some time in jail while in Paris, once for attempting to rob a prostitute, and another time for carrying a gun during a fistfight. 
He was also ambitious, or at least thought highly of himself, bristling when told a house painter during his trial, standing up and declaring himself a pittore, or artist. He also seemingly wanted more than what his lot in life was, telling his father in a note after he had gotten the Mona Lisa. The note said that he'd gotten his fortune. So that is that is interesting, right? Uh, so I did skip over Perugia moves to Paris with the hopes of becoming an artist. It doesn't really take off. He becomes a handyman, house painter, that sort of thing. At this time, museums weren't super safe and the Louvre was no different. So there were some threats of a theft or thefts going on. And so the Louvre hired an outside firm to construct protective glass for paintings throughout the museum, including the Mona Lisa. And Perugia was amongst the workers hired to complete this work. And it, I don't think it's thought that he was hired, like, knowing he planned to steal. I think it was more a happy happenstance for him. Anyway, so to perpetuate this theft, Perugia apparently hid in an art supply closet the night of the 20th. And then he removed the protective glass that he had installed, and maybe not necessarily he installed it on the Mona Lisa, but he installed other pieces of this protection equipment on other pieces of art. Uh, so he removes the painting from its frame and then carries it out of the Louvre under a blanket or smock, and he walks out the front door, the same door he came in, something to that effect, before boarding a train and making his escape. So that's what all of the unquote, or that's what all of the quote unquote reliable sources that I reviewed said. And just a little background for you guys. When I do these things, what I like to do is review the Wikipedia pages first, get the background, see if there's like anything worth pursuing. So I'll pull up like the Wikipedia page of, in this case, Vincenzo Perugia, the heist, the Mona Lisa, and just do the background information. And then I'll look at some of the sources from the articles. Uh, like the Wikipedia pages, and then I'll pull up, I'll just Google it and read like 10 to 15 articles on whatever, and then if they're scholarly articles to find, I'll try to read those, all that good stuff. But so in this case, the Wikipedia article had something that none of the other articles did, and the Wikipedia page for Vincenzo Perugia, using a document from the National Archives in Paris as the source, and the source when I clicked it was in French, and I couldn't decipher it, um, it said that Perugia entered the Louvre the same morning as the theft, waited for the exhibit to empty, took the Mona Lisa to a service staircase, stripped it from the frame and whatnot, all that same stuff, um, and then removed his smock to cover it up and left from the door. So the theft was carried out on a Monday, which is important because it was closed to the public on a Monday. So I don't know why he would have to wait for the exhibit to empty, unless there was other workers renovating it or something. But that's just a little something I wanted to bring in mind. There's a little bit of discrepancy over how he carried out the theft. Another thing, as he was leaving, there was a bit of a hitch. The door he came in, the door he wanted to leave from, was locked. And he couldn't get it open. So he had the tools, his carpentry tools, his thieving tools that he used to carry out the theft. And he used one of these to pop off the doorknob. And unfortunately for him, that did not work, and he was still locked in. Then, you know, he's here fiddling, took the doorknob off the door, standing there with the Mona Lisa under his smock. A plumber or janitor, depending on who you asked, comes walking up and notices him standing there, trying to get out, notices there's no doorknob. He's like, what's going on, bud? Perugia, thinking fast, thinking quick on his feet, you know, reacting like a champ, 
pretends to be just as concerned and confused as the janitor or plumber and is like, hey, man, I'm locked in. I don't know what's going on with the doorknob. Or maybe he was like, I knocked the doorknob off trying to get out. Uh, and then the janitor or plumber, whatever, lets him out. And then he's out. He's in the wind. So I think we can all agree, pretty easy theft on the on the whole. And like I said, that was because at this time, and to an extent to this day, museums, especially art museums, weren't super secure. And that was especially the case for the Louvre. It was the largest building in the entire world at the time, and it was an over 50-acre collection of art galleries, essentially. It was huge. 50 acres. That's gigantic. That's it a lot. And it was patrolled by only a force of 150 security guards. And 150 security guards might sound like a lot, but not when they have 58 acres. I think it's 58. Over 50 acres to patrol. And also, you know, we got to keep in mind, probably not all 150 are working 365, 24-7. So they don't have, there's probably more like 75, 75. And so stuff was stolen from the Louvre or damaged at the very least, including like painting slashed, knocked off their pedestals, uh, statues knocked off their pedestals, stuff like that. All that stuff happened fairly often. In fact, Pablo Picasso, ever heard of him? Pablo Picasso was at the very least a recipient of statues which had been stolen from the Louvre. But more on that later. Like I mentioned earlier, it took more than a full day, but it also took less than a day and a half for museum officials to catch on that the Mona Lisa was missing, and by then Perugia was far from the scene, and there was little evidence for them to work with. And so this was super embarrassing, obviously, for the museum, and it came after an investigative journalist in Paris had written a scathing report of the shortcomings of their security noting how easy it would be to steal any number of paintings as they merely hung from the wall and weren't bolted down, and how he'd been able to spend a night in the museum undetected. So that was why, you know, these installations were going on, and they were trying to upgrade their security, it just didn't work. So obviously everyone freaks out. The Soon after the Mona Lisa was realized to be missing, bit of a delay, but, you know, they got there, uh, the Louvre was shut down for an entire week in order for a full, comprehensive investigation to begin. In fact, the border of France was closed for a time, and the painting almost immediately became too hot to sell. It was impossible to get this sold on the black market because no one wanted to deal with it. They wouldn't be able, like, you know, all the tops were looking for it. And, you know, that's one of Perugia's alleged motives, is that he wanted to make money, make a little scratch, make a little dough. So, unfortunately for him, if that was his motivation wasn't able to move the product. Not only was the painting hot because of the police investigation into it, the press in Paris and all of France and then in all of the world, basically, were covering the story, sensationalism going on. This was a hot-button issue, widely covered. And with this coverage came a ton of conspiracy theories. But despite all this fanfare and conspiracy theories, nobody was even close to identifying Perugia as a suspect. He was interviewed as part of the investigation, but that's because all Louvre employees were. And after telling police that he hadn't heard of the theft until reading about it in the newspaper, they were apparently satisfied, and that was it. Now, among those suspected for the theft were none other than our guy, Pablo Picasso, and the poet and critic, and apparently Pablo Picasso's best friend, uh, Diaomi Apollinaire. 
who had attempted to dump sculptures stolen from the Louvre, but they couldn't bring themselves to do it at the last moment because they were so, so beautiful. Um, and they were arrested in connection with the Mona Lisa theft as a result of this, and they, like, freaked out, but eventually it was realized they had nothing to do with it, and they were let go. Anyway, another suspect was J.P. Morgan, who was famous for his love of art, and the theory was that he had someone steal it, and he was hiding it in some weird rich guy exhibit in one of his mansions or something like that. And then because of the because of the high tensions between France and Germany in what is the lead up to World War I, we know now, agents of the Kaiser were also suspected as having carried out this theft. Because as we know, with any unsolved mystery, conspiracies are going to run rampant. Among these conspiracies also included speculation that the painting wasn't stolen at all, only that there was a bad restoration job, which, you know, we've seen now tons of that stuff going on. And because it was so badly restored that in an attempt to relatively save face, the Louvre concocted this whole theft heist scheme, and really it was just destroyed so that they wouldn't look bad for destroying a Renaissance masterpiece. And another theory was that this was stolen to hide, to drive attention away from colonies that were uprising against the French. But in reality, the painting was just chilling in Perugia's Paris apartment for almost the entire two years it was missing. So Perugia kept the painting in a few places, including under his bed and occasionally on display, but he had to be careful with that. But the story goes that he would he became obsessed with it and would always rush home to stare at it for hours and hours and hours. And then eventually he hid it in a trunk with a false bottom. But he was able to keep it hidden, either because he was wise enough to realized that he couldn't sell it or he didn't really know what to do with it. However, that changed in 1913 when he returned to Italy with the Mona Lisa in tow. He attempts to sell it to he attempted to sell it to an art dealer and he apparently expected to be greeted as a hero, did a hero's welcome and be, did a hefty reward as like a true patriot of Italy for returning the Mona Lisa to Italy from France, where Perugia believed it had been stolen from his people. Now, the art dealer, once they realized that this wasn't a crazy person that they were dealing with, and that it was actually the Mona Lisa, well, they might have been dealing with a crazy person, but it was actually the Mona Lisa, at least. They reported to the authorities, and Perugia was arrested, pled guilty to the crime, and ultimately served six to eight months in prison. Uh, Those six to eight months came prior to his sentencing, and he was let go for the time he already served. His sentence was likely shortened because he was tried in Italy because of the patriotic fervor he was met with. Italians were like, hell yeah, this is like one of our true patriots. This is a good dude. After the Mona Lisa was recovered, Italy was like, all right, we're going to have this. It went on a tour of like a bunch of Italian exhibits, I believe for a week, and then it was returned to France. And that all brings us to why did Perugia carry out this theft? So he maintained that he stole the Mona Lisa, not for the money, which was a popular and probably the most likely of his motivations, but that he did it out of a sense of patriotic duty, which I think does kind of make sense, and there is some believability to this. He had moved to France, you know, he wasn't home, spent time in French prisons, probably didn't make him love the country, and his French co-workers didn't like him and were horribly xenophobic towards him. You know, calling him slurs, stealing from insulting his wine, all that stuff. 
and that in addition, nationalism and xenophobia were at extremely high watermarks in Europe and the United States at this time. And I think that it is possible, given these factors, that he looked at this masterpiece painted by an Italian artist hanging in a French museum for largely French crowds, and he was dismayed and hatched a plan to return this to his motherland. Especially because he believed that, like hundreds of thousands of other works of Italian art, Napoleon had looted the Mona Lisa from Italy during his Italian campaign. Now, there was one small issue with this. And our guy might not have known this, but Leonardo da Vinci brought the painting with him from Italy to France when he moved to France in the 16th century, some 250 years before Napoleon was born. So, Napoleon had not stolen the Mona Lisa, though he did steal a great deal of other pieces of art. We don't know. Perugia only had a third-rate education. He might not have known that. He might not have been great on his history. And his his claimed motivations might have been pure. If, in fact, his motivation was the money, he did apparently have enough connections in the criminal underworld that he would have been able to sell the painting. And at this time, that was a pretty common thing where criminals would sell it and then it would be upsold, upsold, upsold until it found its way into rich secret auctions. So he would have gotten a nice bit of dough. Unfortunately for him, if that was his motivation, like I said, the painting became immediately too hot and impossible to sell, so he would have had to have a buyer waiting. Anyway, after his capture, the painting was returned to the Louvre, where it was hung with significantly improved security, and it has been there ever since. In fact, the security and how it's hanging it has changed so much from when it was stolen that some experts have said that when the world ends, the only thing remaining will be cockroaches and the Mona Lisa. And that brings us to the end of the story. Or does it? Theories emerge that Perugia merely returned a fake copy of the Mona Lisa and that a gang of international thieves had actually stolen the painting and produced a fake that was in Perugia's possession when he was arrested. I'd assume under this theory that the stamp that was found on the bat, which was a stamp from the Louvre, which proved it was a real, like, you know, really belonged to them and was the authentic Mona Lisa, was also forged, which I don't know. I would assume that's possible, but probably would have taken a high-level forger. And I do think there's some attractiveness to this idea, where I would assume Perugia is paid to be the fall guy for the crime, or maybe someone else figured out that he stole the painting and that it was stolen from him and the real painting is out there in the wind somewhere. And I just think, you know, people like harmless conspiracies like that, where there's like this, the real Mona Lisa is out there hidden, or just weird criminal conspiracy theories like this. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot or even any evidence of this. Another theory was proposed in 1932 by Carl Decker, a reporter who wrote for the Saturday Evening News. So Decker claimed that an Argentinian con man by the name of Eduardo de Valfriano paid several men, including Perugia, to steal the original Mona Lisa. Now, the Argentinian's motivations were purely money, as he had six forgeries commissioned by um, a man named Yves Chaudron, which were shipped to the United States. According to Decker, Valfierno sold forgeries on multiple occasions. 
And the way he would do this is he would take a victim to a public art gallery and invite him to make a secret mark on the back of a painting that he had scheduled to be stolen. Later, the Argentinian would present him with the marked canvas, which had allegedly been stolen and replaced with a copy. The trick was actually accomplished by secretly placing the copy behind the real painting and removing it after the buyer had applied his mark. So, according to Decker, Valfriarno had told him that this was how he had gained the confidence of those he pre-sold the Mona Lisa to. So each buyer was then led to believe that they had the sole, original, authentic Mona Lisa in their, pre- in their collection, and that they had the only one in existence, obviously. And with the price jacked up from its newfound fame and duplicated six times, our guy probably got quite the haul, right? Valfierno supposedly claimed that the one monkey wrench in his plan had been Perugia himself, because apparently he was originally content to just let him be out there with the painting, not contact him, just like let him be out there, even though he had told him to steal it, and that Perugia getting pinched was quite the complication. However, apparently Perugia's decision to use his patriotism as a defense made it impossible for him to say that he'd been hired for the crime and to point out that Valfierno had hired him, which saved him. And then I guess his march, the people he had sold the fake Mona Lisa's to, were either too meek to complain to him and seek a refund, or assumed that the Mona Lisa in the Louvre was a fake, and that they actually still had the real one, and that it was um, a fake story to save face. And I don't know, I don't think this one really made sense. Because like the heist itself and the sale, that part of the scheme works, right? But... I don't think it makes sense that a guy who intricately plans the sale of Sitz Mona Lisa's to people, he does it all in the U.S., and none of them know about the others. I don't think rich people who are like are running in super big circles, I feel like rich people kind of know each other, and I feel like they like to show off and brag, and I feel like, you know, the saying is the only way two people can keep a secret is if one of them are dead. So I just think it gets out if there are multiple Mona Lisa's in the U.S. And also, I don't know that someone unscrupulous enough to buy a stolen painting isn't going to come after you if you sell them a fake painting. I feel like they would come after him. So I don't think that they would have been like, oh, no, oh, rats, I guess I'm just out of that money. I feel like someone would have come for Valfierno and he would have either had to refund them in money or blood. And I also have to question why on earth he would have left Perugia out there able to tell this story and with the real Mona Lisa, because that's the only way he could be taught is if the real Mona Lisa was produced. And by leaving the one guy who could point him out, I just feel like you kill that guy, right? Or you pay him off or you do literally anything besides leave him to just wander around and do whatever with the Mona Lisa. Is that too hot of a take? Another issue with this is that the only evidence that both Valfierno and his master forger existed were this article by Decker. So it does seem incredibly likely that either some guy made up the story pretending to be a criminal and tricked Decker or that Decker made up the story. Either way, though, it is an incredible story and would be cool if true. After all this, you may find yourself wondering, what happened to our guy Vincenzo Perugia after getting out of prison? Well, 
he served in the Italian army during World War I. Ultimately, he was taken as a prisoner of war by the Austrian-Hungarian army. He remained a prisoner of war for two years until the war ended, and given that, I think he might have been better off with a more lengthy jail sentence in Italy. After the war, he settled down, married, had a child, and continued to work as a house painter, and he used his real name Pietro Prugia. And he would pass away in 1925 at only 44 years old. Because he had faded from memory and hidden kind of by using his birth name, his passing caused little fanfare, and that combined with reluctance by art historians to credit a thief with promoting the Mona Lisa to its height now. Uh, our guy Perugia and this heist have kind of faded into the background. Like, people aren't really super aware of this. And I feel like if you said, you know, did you know the Mona Lisa was stolen? I don't know that many people would know that. And I don't know that anybody besides people who have gone out of their way to look into this would know who stole the Mona Lisa. And that, my lovely friends, is how the Mona Lisa was stolen and how it came to be revered as much as it is today. Well, that and, you know, all the conspiracy theories about who the model who sat for the painting were, uh, our guy Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, you know, ever heard of it, Tom Hanks, and all that conspiracy stuff. So that's all I have for you guys for this episode. Not, you know, not one of the longer ones, a little bit of an easy intro into the topic, into the season of heists, and just to keep everything consistent this season i'm not doing the news or what i've been into lately especially because most of what i'm going to be into is heist related stuff because i'm working so hard on this season and not really doing like the extracurriculars anyway as always if you did what you're hearing make sure you hop on the podcast platform of your choice and drop a five-star rating and review they really help they really you know would help more people find the show if you like it Tell people about it also, you know, tell your friends, be like, hey, hop on here, come listen, Uh, tell your enemies if you don't like it, you know, just be like, here's this thing that I love, but really you hate it, but as long as you get people to listen, that's sick, and make sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at high tea underscore obsessed underscore podcast, or if you just search high tea obsessed podcast, it'll show up, or high tea obsessed, and on Twitter at high tea podcast, same deal there. And I'm posting memes, I'm posting reviews, I'm posting updates about the show, and a little bit of video content. There's going to be some graphics, there's going to be votes, there's going to be polls, all sorts of good stuff going on this season. And until next time, peace out all you lovely macaroni eaters.